Hi everyone, this is the David Birnbaum Connection, and I'm David Birnbaum. My guest today is Jim Estill, CEO of Danby Appliances. Jim is an investor, an executive, and a philanthropist. His first business he grew from the trunk of his car to a $350 million business. He then ran Synex and grew it from $800 million in annual sales to $2 billion. He recently made a lot of headlines by personally sponsoring over 80 refugee families to Canada, something that he says he took on like a business as well. He also received the Order of Ontario and Order of Canada. It was a really good conversation, and Jim has a great philosophy for life and business. If you're interested in running a successful business or being able to give back if and when you do, I would definitely encourage listening to this episode and checking out his blog at jimestill.com. I think you'll find it as refreshing as I did to talk to someone who just wants to do the right thing. Hey, Jim. Thanks for being on. I appreciate you joining me today. Well, thanks for having me. So you have quite the impressive uh, CV or resume uh, these days. And I guess we'll start, I'd like to start going back to what your experience was like in school and then kind of what led you to, you know, now be running these, these, this second or third quite large company you've run in your, in your lifetime. Sure. So, I mean, uh, as far as school goes, mm. I uh, was highly average and I passed, so <laughs> I'm, I'm thrilled with that. So yeah. I uh, got my iron ring um, in systems design engineering. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I graduated in class of 80 and I started a uh, computer. Just I started a company from the trunk of my car at that time while I was in fourth year university. And I needed a computer because I wanted to design circuit boards, got a better deal if I bought two of them. So I bought two and sold one and someone else needed a printer and someone else needed some software. So next thing you know, I'm buying and selling computer okay. products, hardware and peripherals. So I grew that business to a couple billion in sales and I sold oh, wow. it. And then I retired and moved to New York for five years, mostly yeah. doing angel and venture capital. Um, I happened to sit on the board of Danby Appliances. Oh, and then my dad got sick, so I moved back to Canada mm-hmm. um, quickly. I was sort of retired, um, and I sat on the board of Danby Appliances. The CEO resigned, and I said, oh, I could uh, run it on the interim. And then I started running it again, and I thought, oh, wow, I, I'm really too young to be retired. So I... Um, <laughs> thought I would run it. And then the ownership group said they wanted me to sell it. Well, then I said, how much for? And they told me, and I said, great, I'll take the company. So yeah, back, back operating a business, which is what I love. Okay. So let, let's start with while you were in school, you started this business. It was really out of just necessity, I guess. It kind of came about uh, naturally. You needed a computer and then some other people did. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I needed a computer because I was trying to do some circuit board design and I got a better deal if I bought two of them. So I bought two and then sold one. And then someone else bought it one. So I bought another two. And so I became a computer reseller. And how um, does that, you then jumped to, you know, 2 billion in sales. So how does, what were a few of the steps in, in between? <laughs> well, um, I guess. Uh, so you're in your, you have, you know, you're selling out of your trunk for a while. At what point do you realize this is actually like how I can make my living? Well, then, then I graduated yeah. and I applied for jobs and I had in my mind, if someone would pay me a certain amount of money, I would take a job. They didn't pay mm-hmm. me that money. Yeah. So I, uh, I kept doing my computer business. So my first year in sales, I did $450,000 in sales. Then I did a million and 79 and then I did 2.6 million. Then I did 4.6 million. Then I did 5.6 million. So that was a slow growth year. And then yeah. I did 10 million and 21 million. 30 million and then uh, 40 million, 41 million of 39 million. So there's three years where I plateaued and I learned yeah. that no, no growth is no fun. Then I did <laughs> uh, 68 million. Then I did uh, 104 million. And so I, it took me like eight years to get to a um, hundred million in sales. Yeah. And, and then uh, after I was doing uh, over actually when, I sold the business to a company called Cynix and I ran Cynix Canada, which was an $800 million business. And mm-hmm. during that time, I never grew by less than a hundred million uh, a year. And in many cases I'd grow a hundred million in a quarter. Yeah. So I grew from 
800 million to 2 billion over a five year period. And uh, so, yeah, so that's uh, what if you had to, th those are quite impressive numbers, especially for, you know, at the time an early stage company. And, you know, what what are some of the key things that you would tell someone? How did you manage to do it and how do how do you manage to keep doing it? Well, the key is luck. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I know that's what everyone wants to hear. No. So I, I clearly am lucky. Um, yeah. What I did do is I would always study people who were doing more business than I was. So yeah. when I was doing five million, I looked at what what are people doing ten million doing, and what are people doing fifty million doing. And when I was doing fifty million, what are people doing a hundred million? And when I was doing a hundred million, what's a billion dollars? So I kept on figuring out how did I need to change in order to get to the next level. Mm -hmm. And one thing I learned is often to get to the next level, I had to stop doing some things. Okay. So. You know, just like your business doing podcasts, you may find when you have, you know, a million listeners and you're a certain size, you may say, well, gee, I, you can't do all the audio editing. You can't do all the interviews. You, you have to kind of do less yeah. and be better at the few things that you do, but let someone else do the accounting or whatever the pieces to your business there are. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You said you also do uh, did investment. Do you find that that mindset it's not the mindset I think of when I think of, you know, people doing startups and starting businesses now. Um, what, what are your thoughts on the environment? So, so I, um, while I was running my business, I made a lot of early stage investments. So I invested mm -hmm. in over 150 companies. Oh, wow. And I was a board member, um, a mentor, a uh, coach to many, many businesses. And the one that, that I'm most famous for is BlackBerry. So I was mm -hmm. on the board of BlackBerry before they went public for the first 13 years. So mm -hmm. I saw them grow. Now, actually, the interesting thing, when I joined their board, I was bigger than BlackBerry okay. um, running my business. And, yeah. and then uh, they quickly eclipsed me. So yeah. I saw BlackBerry grow as well. Um, and... Uh, so I've, I've done 150, more than 150 tech investments. I've exited from 25 of those. Oh, wow. And uh, so it's all good. Yeah. And so do you, do you think the environment now of like, do you invest in, you know, the, let's say four people coming out of university with a startup, if they have a good idea, that's kind of the model that a lot of, you know, my peers view of these, like, you know, the Facebooks at the early stage, the Airbnb, do they have that mindset of always looking at what is the next stage or do they more so think that um you know they, they know the answers so the the investment climate has changed over the over my experience yeah. when i was starting uh startup was not cool now startup is cool startup yeah. is cool and say oh you're gonna have four people in your garage and you're gonna go out and raise a bunch of money um when i was doing it i, I tried to raise money was unsuccessful mm -hmm. and so I grew within the money that I made. I grew within profitability. That meant sometimes I'd have yeah. to curtail my growth, but it was a very good learning experience. It was also very good because I had no money and having no money is the best discipline <laughs> to learn a layer, layer of frugality yeah. and, um, and whatnot. And when I look at startups that are looking for money, I'd say that fully more than half of them shouldn't be raising money. Services yeah. businesses should not raise money. They should just grow within profitability. Yeah. And so it's, I also believe in selling and then buying. So not going and spending 10,000 hours trying to develop a product and hope that you buy it. Mm -hmm. Rather, go and sell sell a thousand of them and then go and build it. So it's yeah. a sell and then buy is another trick that I try to employ in business. And it's very much not the the main thing now, right? So I, I just read Lyft had its IPO and they're still not profitable. And they said right. in their IPO filing, like, they don't know if they'll ever be profitable. And it still just was an absurd buying spree by everyone. Absolutely. So what do you do? do you, are you someone who wouldn't invest in, in Lyft then in those types of companies that are clearly growing, but they're potentially growing to collapse in on themselves? Well, I I generally have not – I don't generally invest in companies that aren't going to make a profit. Yeah. One of my claims to fame is I was profitable for 99 consecutive quarters when I was business. Yeah. So that was one of the claims to fame. So I believe in making a profit. Now, that said, I also um, have been involved in businesses which are pre-revenue even and pre-profit. Uh, yeah. um, 
profitability. And the key really is you can be pre-profitability for a while as long as you have the trajectory and you are going to get profitable. I think yeah. the reason Lyft would say in their perspective they may not become profitable is because in a prospectus you have to say, well, we assume the sky is going to fall and uh, therefore you know, you know, everybody's yeah. going to uh, – you have to – paint this really dire thing otherwise the shareholders sue you to say hey i thought the shares were going to go up yeah that makes sense um okay so you what made you decide to retire then or or sell the first company and retire uh well i guess part of it is it was sort of in my mind that's what you do you you grow a company to a certain size and then you retire and mm -hmm. i was also pretty invo actively involved in this early stage investing so i thought oh, I'll, I'll just you know be a board member be a mentor do some investing in early stage companies but what i learned is i don't like just being an advisor just being mm -hmm. a board member just being a, a an investor i like running a business i would have yeah. frustration that i thought oh this company should do this and then you'd recommend it and then they don't do it and uh whatnot so yeah. i really like that the other thing i like is to some extent scalability and that goes with the story when when i was running my 800 million dollar company that grew by uh you know grew to two billion over five years Danby is appliance is about 400 million in sales so if we increase margin by one percent it's four million dollars we increase sales yeah. by 20 percent it's 80 million dollars we um you know reduce expenses by one percent it's four million these are big numbers what i find in startups i can help you save 10 percent on your expenses and you save ten thousand dollars or something yeah. it's not um, it's not it as exciting yeah exactly i can double your sales oh great yeah you get another you do a quarter million in sales it doesn't uh it, it's not the scalability so so you that's why you you ended up coming back into business because you you basically tried for a few years just being an advisor and playing with more of let's say the small small change and and it was just wasn't satisfying enough that that's right um another reason is practical i looked at my successes and on average it was taking me 13 years to make money out of my startup businesses yeah and uh, so i have to take my ad age and add 13 years yeah and and my father had died after i came back mm -hmm. he had the audacity to die and <laughs> i learned that cleaning up private company uh stuff in an estate is a lot of work yeah. unlike if you have shares in the Royal Bank or uh, real estate, those things sell. Those are yeah. pretty easy assets. What's a tough asset are all these shares in private businesses. Mm -hmm. So that's why I eased off on that and and back to operating. And I, I view Danby Appliances as a platform that allows me to do other things. So that's my whole approach to Danby. It's, it's a platform. A platform for, to give you kind of more of a, an audience, let's say, or it's like a good launching ground. It, it keeps you going. Well, it's it's a launch. It's a launching ground that has size and scale. Mm -hmm. So, you know, at Danby, we recently introduced Parcel Guard, which is a smart parcel mailbox. So it's mm -hmm. changing the way we think about who we are. Yeah. We're not just an appliance company. We're a company that makes big boxes. Well, yeah. that's that's capitalizing on a growth trend. Everybody's buying everything online. There's yeah. lots of parcel theft from door, front doors. I believe within a decade, most people will have a parcel mailbox of some kind yeah that that means of the 70 million standalone households in north america if 70 percent adopt that's 50 million mailboxes and i'm not arrogant enough to say we'll be the supplier but we yeah. can certainly be a meaningful supplier yeah. so we conceived of the product it's got a lot of the electronics like uh you get an email or text to say you've got a three pound parcel and you can look on the camera and see who delivered it and uh i can give yeah. you a one-time use code and you can open it or I can open it remotely if you want to put a bigger box in that fits in the drop box part of it. So yeah. it's uh, I, I that's using Danby as a platform as opposed yeah. to saying, oh, we're just a boring appliance company that makes bar fridges and freezers. Yeah. Well, and so that's, you know, those are two different, very interesting points that I want to, you know, ask more about. And I would assume it's due to your experience and expertise, but it's very different than most people I talk to who run businesses because one was, uh, you know, shifting from we're not an appliance company. What do we make? We make big boxes. They happen to be appliances. Where else? And that's such a I mean, that's such a smart way to look at it. And, and I like I, I'm impressed. And uh, th that's not the way I 
most of the people I talk to, they don't have that mindset. So maybe you're just one of the more experienced or, or this is why you're successful in business. But do you, do you have other people who think similarly to you? Um, cause there's so many businesses that just die from lack of adaptability, but that's definitely looking at a, a very different framework of any business. So I, I have some people who obviously think creatively and it liberates people who do think creatively to say, oh, great, we're not going to just keep doing the same old thing. We have some mm. opportunity. But at the same time, even as a company, we're not a big company, but as a company the size of Danby, you actually don't need very many ideas. So yeah. I just told you that parcel guard, smart parcel mailbox. Yeah. But all of a sudden you need 40 people, you need 50 or 100 people to go and design it and build it and oh we had we opened a new factory in Coburg to build the thing and mm -hmm. by the time you go and do all that it, it, you need a lot of people who are executing you don't want a lot more ideas as a matter of fact the best thing I like to have is I like to have 25 ideas and choose the best two yeah as opposed to saying that that's that's the model I like yeah that makes sense and do you find some of the because do you still invest in other companies are you no, no, I'm trying to back off of that okay. because of my time frame. And I like to stay focused on this. Yeah, that makes sense. And so the second thing that was interesting is that, you know, you, the idea that it's going to be a massive pie. You don't need all of it. There's going to be 50 million of, of these types of things in your prediction. And even if you have 5 million, 10 million of them, that's, again, very different than a typical all or nothing mindset that people expect they need to, like, create and, and own all of the pie. Um, all of a specific industry or something like that. And, and there, the idea that competition is somehow bad. Well, I mean, of course I would prefer to be a monopoly yeah. and have no competition. <laughs> but at the end of the day, I've made all, all of my money in competitive industries. Yeah. And if you look at Danby Appliances, Danby Appliances is totally in a competitive industry. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're competing on bar fridges with LG and Samsung and higher and GE and you name it. We're competing yeah. on freezers with Whirlpool, like you name it. There's 80 gazillion other guys that make appliances. So we're generally in an unprotected space, in which case one of my skill sets is execution. So we aren't located in Toronto. We're in Guelph. It's lower overhead. Mm -hmm. We're, uh, um, I, I think it's the frugality that happened when I started my business. Yeah. I had no money and that sort of ripples through to today where See the the pen I'm using doesn't have a uh, isn't a, a pen that you buy. It's a pen that has a logo on it because why yeah. would I pay for a pen when I can yeah. get a pen with a logo on it for free? And it do you even though you don't invest as much or or you don't actively invest anymore? Do you still mentor people? Because really, when I when I hear what you're saying, it's so at contrast with what the average startup 30-year-old, 20-year-old is trying to do. They all have to be in San Francisco or Toronto. And like, it's just they're, they're packing themselves into places with so much overhead that it doesn't seem like they're actually interested in building a business. So I do some advising. My problem and every entrepreneur's problem is time. Yeah. So it's all a matter of how do you spend your time? As a matter of fact, if, back to business success, one of the things I wrote 20 years ago, I wrote a book on time management. Okay. And that's because I I had a problem with time management. I still have a problem with time management. Yeah. Time is my biggest thing, right? So uh, that's how I get everything done. Yeah. And so what's your number one advice for, uh, number one piece of advice for time management? Well, time management is more about priority management than it is about time management. Okay. That's my my suggestion. If you know what your priorities are, work on the right priorities, you're more apt to be successful than if you're completely efficient working on the wrong things. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And so what what interests you the most about Danby now? Is it that, you know, you you are deciding you're a big box company and, and like, how do I grow it from there? What about the platform of Danby is the most exciting to you? Uh, well, Danby has great channel. So we sell through all of the major retailers and mm -hmm. online, you know, dot com and stuff like that. Um, but largely it's a platform and it's a scalable platform. Yeah. So if I need, uh, you know, if I need to store uh you know, a hundred thousand square foot worth of stuff. I've got a million square feet so yeah. I can, uh, um, do things which would be very difficult for you to do. Yeah. Um, I, I also do happen to like physical stuff mm -hmm. because physical stuff is actually difficult to do. 
So that's actually a barrier to entry. I yeah. just told you and all your listeners a great product idea. Go do a parcel mailbox and put it on your front porch with an IP camera. Like, yeah. It's not that tough, but I'm telling you, it's kind of tough because yeah. how many square feet and how do you ship these things around and how do you ship them without damage and how do you service them? And, and uh, it, there's a lot, a lot to it. And so I like that kind of stuff. The, the problem with just straight software is it's not as many barriers to entry. And that's what a lot of these startups are. You know, there's mm -hmm. four people. Oh, we've got a great app that's going to do something. Okay, I get that. But I can take any other four people and develop an app in not much time. Yeah. And really, if, if you have like a bit of a better, it's very easy to rip off and beat. Whereas, you know, if I want to start competing with Danby, it's going to be a lot of a longer haul. That's right. That's exactly yeah. right. Okay, and so now I'm interested to shift, uh, you know, you, you got a lot of notoriety and attention around your decision to sponsor 80 Syrian refugee families. Can you tell me a bit about starting with, you know, when did you decide to do that? What was that like thought process or conversations that led to this decision to, to take that upon yourself? Well, largely I saw there was humanitarian crisis happening. Mm -hmm. I have a belief in... Uh, just a a belief that part of what you need to do if you're successful is give back and try to solve all the problems of the world. Yeah. And I just saw this as being a problem in the world that wasn't being solved fast enough. Canada has a private sponsorship program. So I agreed to sponsor just 50 Syrian refugee families. And now okay. I'm up to 89, but of the 89, probably only 75 are Syrian. The others are Rohingya. And I even have a family from Venezuela, different places. I sort mm. of became known as the refugee guy. Yeah. Um, now, I, I also set that up on scale, which is one of my problems, but one of the things I do. Mm -hmm. I tend to do things on scale, and my wife always is cringes whenever I have a new idea. <laughs> I'm not going to go and – well, I mean, even Parcel Guard, the, I mean, we opened a new factory to make it. So it's yeah. like, not, not like we sort of said, oh, yeah, we'll uh, – Try we'll make it. one in the back on a 3D yeah. printer and, uh, and, and whatnot. I, I tend to do things on scale. Yeah. So with the refugee project, I um, we had 800 volunteers, and we organized it like a business. So there's a director of jobs, a director of health, a director of education, and each family has a mentor family, like four or five mentor families, and they have checklists to open a bank account, get a bus pass, ride the bus with them, test for ESL level, register them at ESL school, register the kids in school, get a doctor, blah, blah, mm. blah. And then we do scorecarding just like you would in a business to say, Oh, yeah. you know, family's all green or, Oh no, there's this one needs a little help in learning English better or something. So that's, uh, the other part of, uh, that that's the way I implemented our refugee program. Yeah. So when you decided to sponsor, you're go definitely going to sponsor at scale. That's just the way you, the way you operate. It, it is. It does tend to be the way I operate. Yes. And it never even occurred to me that what I was doing was a big deal. Um, I just thought, you know, that's in the range of what I could afford for my charitable budget. And yeah. uh, and if you're going to do 50 families from a charitable budget, you can't just sort of say, great, here's a check. Um, that's not successful settlement. Successful settlement is people working, speaking English, some degree of integration. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I could give you a check and put you up at a in a motel or a room. You don't that's have not... a life yet. Yeah. Yeah. And so it was much more, is the process still ongoing, you'd say then? Yes. Oh, yes, def definitely. So I've got 59 more um, people, not families, 59 more people. So probably another dozen families for 2019 coming in. So it, it's an ongoing thing and yeah. process. Do you, do you think it will continue to be an ongoing thing? Like, is this what your part of your charitable budget is now earmarked for, is, is continuing this process? I think so, and partly it's because I sort of became known as I'm the refugee guy. Mm -hmm. And once you get in there, it becomes tough to extricate yourself because I have feelings for people, and I get approached yeah. a gazillion times. And I hear stories, and and like we are so fortunate for where we live. Yeah, and for like I don't even know what your state is, but the fact is you're in a great place. You're yeah. not going to get you're not going home and finding your place got bombed tonight. You're not. Uh, going, getting a call to say your brother was killed at a checkpoint. You're, you, you, we're so fortunate, and yeah. and even even basic subsistence. If you have a problem, it's because there's uh, traffic congestion on the corner, and boy, it's awful. It took you an extra ten minutes to get home. What what a yeah. bad day you had. 
have you always had a, a kind of broader perspective? Because there's a lot of people who don't realize that, right? They live in their life in Canada and they has working with the refugees and sponsoring them helped broaden your perspective or you always kind of had that? I have always had that. But I, one thing I learned from the Syrian refugees or from the refugees is the secret to happiness. Mm -hmm. And the secret to happiness is to be grateful for what you have, not ungrateful for what you've lost or ungrateful for what someone else has. Yeah. And once I figured that out, that, that applies to a lot of other people because you can go home tonight and be really, uh, really sad because your neighbor has a bigger, a bigger car house, in the driveway yeah. or, or a bigger house or uh, I don't know, whatever. And but happiness is being, you know, being grateful for what you have. Now, the gratitude thing, I I've been practicing gratitude for years. So I think that's partly why I end up with this charitable view on life mm -hmm. i i count my blessings every day and i'm just so blessed like any problems i have are first first world problems i i'm just yeah uh, grateful grateful i can talk to you i mean i'm, yeah. I'm just grateful right That's... as opposed to, as opposed to being gee i'm uh upset because i'm behind on my email isn't that yeah. a rough rough problem i have <laughs> I'm behind on my email yeah definitely that's uh it's refreshing to hear and so i i thank you for sharing that um, do you also find that, you know, in addition to being the refugee guy, let's say, do you find that because you're business minded, you know, you're efficient, you know, you can do this well now, right? Like if you sponsor a family, you know how to make sure that they're going through the process. You have the infrastructure rather than just, you know, some other person who sponsors them. Have you thought about like reaching out and, and consulting with other people who want to sponsor refugees because you have this expertise that's growing so you're right it is easier for me because i've done it so many times mm -hmm. and i so i do have experience i've got systems and process i have shared the way we do it with dozens of groups mm -hmm. and i do try to help where i can and share my successes my failures and how we've had to pivot so like we pivoted all the way through this yeah. i originally was not going to hire any refugees because i was worried people would say oh you just brought in a bunch of slave labor for your factory mm -hmm. and then what i learned when they came in is they weren't job ready so i couldn't i tried to send them to my friends businesses to work yeah and and they would not work so yeah it would not work they didn't have canadian culture yeah so now i have a program called ease into canada which is 90 days in the factory and the focus is on learning english so we do esl classes we do english lunch buddies we do english word of the day we do english homework english yeah. coaching we do resume writing we um uh, but at the same time you're teaching people english culture or, or canadian culture that how to how to be a good person within the workforce and that kind of yeah stuff. and it's it, it's to tell you through the simple stuff like if your shift starts at eight you show up at eight yeah you don't show up at eight thirty. Yeah. if uh like if the rule is you have to wear safety shoes it means you don't wear flip-flops yeah in the uh, in the warehouse and it, it's it's the, the little things like that um as well getting people to learn english um, if you do not know English in Canada, you're greatly disadvantaged. Yeah. So, uh, a focus on learning English. And I learned that learning English is a lot tougher than I thought. Yeah. I mean, I didn't think it was that tough to learn, I, but I guess, uh, <laughs> yes, yeah. it, it your, fir your first language is always different. And I have heard that English is quite a tough language. It's quite bizarre well, in its... Oh, it totally structure. is. And, and and when you start talking to people in other languages, then you realize how bad our language is. Yeah. <laughs> here's the rules. Oh, we break them all the time. So yeah. the rule, oh, except in this. Right. And all of the uh, the idioms like, uh, well, doesn't that just take the cake? Yeah. Well, what the heck does that mean? He took the cake. Right. Like, <laughs> yeah. And there's um, some so many things with double meaning. So it's it's great. And have you found do you after the 90 day program, do you keep some of them on as Danby employees or most of them I, transition? I would say more than 50% transition, but if we have open positions, they're welcome to apply for them. So they yeah. can apply for them like anybody else. But yes, we, we have, I think 20 or 25 that have remained here in various capacities. So many of them, like I've got uh, one guy who's awesome in my IT department. So he basically graduated and be, and I have one who works in my accounting department who's also awesome doing, you know, check, reconciliation and stuff like that mm -hmm. so 
some people have graduated to the office and other people still uh, work in the factory. It depends on partly what your um, interest and ability is. Yeah. Um, I have a couple that work in the factory that are challenged to learn English and I've sort of changed my mind. I thought everybody could learn English and now I've changed my mind to say, okay, you can learn basic English, yeah. but you can't learn. You're not going to be uh, converse, fully conversant, but you'll still be able to buy your groceries but not uh, and know what the money is, but you're not going to be uh, having long conversations. Yeah. And so now that you've done this process and do you find it a passion? What 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 are your passions? What drives you to even run Danby well? Uh, like, what parts of it do you enjoy the most? This or well, that, like the the company or uh, sponsoring. What what makes you you know have a kick in your step? Well, I I believe I know my purpose. My purpose is to help as many people as possible achieve their greatest potential. And so Danby, that gives me that means I can take some kid and they can grow up in a company and have opportunity and uh and grow that that's great same thing with refugees so it's just achieving the most potential um people can do mm -hmm. um it's a pretty a inspiring business. uh purpose to to know for yourself that's very powerful yeah, I, to hear i appreciate that well and the other thing is that uh i am a business guy so i do measure myself by business terms. And, the, and as I've gotten older, I realize that is the greatest contribution I can make is mm -hmm. through business. So I could say, oh, I am going to teach someone how to speak English and realize I'm going to pull my, my hair out. And it's not who, you know, I'm not going to love this. Yeah. Um, uh, but organizing it and orchestrating it and inspiring others to get involved and uh, running it like a business that that totally is where I am good. That's good. Um, the, the refugees, how do they kind of react or respond to you? You know, what, what's the reception of you now? Um, well, I'm just a regular guy. Um, but some of them put me up on a pedestal yeah. and believe that I am a savior. But, um, Many of them, though, are also bitter in some cases because they lost a lot when they came from wherever their background is. You have to realize the difference between an immigrant and a refugee. Yeah. A refugee is involuntary. Yeah. Someone comes and takes all your stuff and makes your life a very dangerous place, and you get picked up and moved to a, a country that is cold even on April 1st with snow. <laughs> yeah. And, and <laughs> is... Uh, and they and you don't speak the language. Oh, and by the way, none of your credentials are recognized. So we don't care that you've got a civil engineering degree. That's that's like kind of uh, no big deal. And furthermore, you you don't speak Russian or wherever you got put sent to. So you're not. So yeah. Uh, but generally speaking, uh, they are grateful. Um, we've had very good success with people work. Like our measure is people working, speaking English, some degree of integration, and we have very good success with people working. We'd be at ninety percent plus. Mm -hmm. people working at a level they can support themselves and uh do you know that, how your do you know how your rates compare to the average or like the government sponsored refugees our our rate is uh better than government sponsored but i do not know the actual statistics mm -hmm. but part of it is that that's part of my focus yeah like that that's my measure of success is is people working i believe in work i mean like i retired you know, I had enough money. <laughs> I, I donated enough money to the refugee project. I, I didn't have to donate that. I could have just lived on it. Yeah. The bottom line is I work and I think work has higher value than just a paycheck. Yeah. And I, I believe if it, it work is actually a cure for depression. Mm -hmm. If you, if I sat at home all day and watched the television and and you know yeah it, it provides a social fabric it's a best way to learn english it, it's the best way to provide hope and it provides uh self-esteem like the same thing if i took all your stuff and said to you okay great you, now you're on a monthly allowance you can still live but you have no way to improve yourself and no way to contribute you, you, you know just sit at home you'd get depressed too yeah and do you find that other people, what about, how do, how are you treated now in your like Canadian circles, let's call it for lack of a better term, do you find, so you've, you've received the order of Ontario, you've received the order of Canada now, you're, these are quite prestigious things. Do you, do you find that 
you view yourself as a regular guy. Do people view you as an inspiration or how are you treated in some circles? Well, some people hold me up on a pedestal, but I'm just a regular guy. So it depends. It depends on the person. I actually think that's a dangerous um, thing. If a, if a person starts thinking they're good and starts thinking their opinions worth more than someone else's, <laughs> you're not going to learn. Yeah, you, you're, and you have to be very careful not to surround yourself with a bunch of people that say, "Oh, yes, sir, no, sir, yes, sir," you know, because I need people who say, "No, no, we shouldn't be doing that. We should be doing this." And you need people who question and and whatnot. So there's that downside. I I will also say that things like Order of Canada, Order of Ontario, um, I got an honorary PhD from University of Guelph. Those are byproducts of. Actually, our tagline is do the right thing. So it's a byproduct of do the right thing. Mm -hmm. Just like money is a byproduct of running a good business. If you run a business and say, I am doing this for the money, you will fail. Yeah. If you run, go to seek to run a good business, money will be a byproduct. Like it's that's that's my experience. If I just say, no, I'm just running this to maximize my dollar, uh, you're not going to be in it for the long run. Yeah. And again, these these are quite great insights. So I do appreciate you, you sharing them. What was, can you tell me a bit about what the process was like of getting the order of Canada or the order of Ontario? Like, was it surreal and all, like, and logistically what happened? How was it to, to experience that as a regular guy? So they're, they're both very surreal. Um, part of what's surreal is, you're going up on stage, receiving an award with a bunch of rocket scientists. Yeah. And so in a way, I feel that I'm seriously outclassed <laughs> and seriously because I'm just because I'm just a regular guy and all these people are serious, serious people. Yeah. So there's that about it. There's a lot of pomp and circumstance around it. So uh, people like and want this this uh, pomp and circumstance. Um, and I, it is a great honor. It's, uh, it's kind of cool. Yeah. It's, uh... Does it, does it, uh, I mean, it seems that you, you're quite a grounded person, so it doesn't really change the way you view yourself. You say like, if it would, then that's the start of problems. That that's exactly right. And, uh, I will make a parallel with money. Mm -hmm. My experience is if you change because you have a lot of money, that's a, that's the start of problems too. Yeah. And so uh, I I mean I'm sure I've changed some, but I don't think I changed a lot because I have a lot of money, um, or and I have a lot less than I did anyway because I give so much of it away. But uh, <laughs> um, it's it, you you should tr you should not change just because you have money. And I think the reason I didn't change as much as some people is I did not make my money quickly. I made mm -hmm. my money slowly. When you make your money slowly, I think you value it more. Where if I just put all my money on 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 the poker table and won, uh, you know, millions of dollars, I I see that in some of these startups you talk about that developed Lyft or whatever. Yeah, that people handle the money, and also it harkens back to my purpose, um, which is you know help as many people as possible achieve their greatest potential. Part of that for me is to be environmentally friendly mm -hmm. so i look to have a reasonably as small of environmental footprint and i'm not great because mm -hmm. i fly but other than that i i tend to have a very small environmental footprint i don't try to uh, maximize my environmental footprint and i and i i actually another philosophy is i i live the same life that my employees could live yeah so i don't um you know i have one house i have I have one car. My wife has a car, so I guess there's two cars in the family. Mm -hmm. But my car is uh, what's well, a 2011, I think. Um, you know, I mean, it's not. You know, yeah, it costs so, twenty costs twenty thousand dollars. I mean, it's not like I'm driving. Uh, you know, whatever, yeah. right? And so, have you have you always been this grounded person? And and how do you feel about the world around you? I guess because you seem an anomaly to me, to to be honest, right? And I and you. You seem very well grounded, and maybe it's just my generation and the younger people are are so different. Do you find that you're kind of 
unique or, or many of the people you interact with have similar mentalities? Well, see, I've had a lot more years to become a philosopher. <laughs> so I've become a philosopher and I have my philosophies. Yeah. Um, and I think uh, coming from frugal beginnings help has helped me stay grounded. Yeah. I think, and I think a gratitude practice, I am grateful every day for all, for everything. I'm so grateful. Like I, and I do really do not have any problems. Yeah. Even if, um, even if sales aren't what they should have been last month or whatever, right. That's mm -hmm. not the, even if there's a tariff on my products going into the States, it's, those are inconveniences and externalities. Um, so I think the gratitude plays into it and coming from frugal or, or modest background, I think also helps. Were you that way when you were a, a, you know, a student in university, let's say, or it is kind of with experience that you've become this philosopher and had these realizations? Well, I think I became a philosopher over time yeah. because when I, when you're a student and just starting out, you're basically uh, trying to put food on the table every minute and yeah. your focus is on, on trying to make the business live um, or survive um, and then hopefully make a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. I am I am interested to kind of dive in a bit on your purpose because I very much am similar that I think the way to make a difference is through running a company and, and using the means to make a difference and f provide people fulfillment. But that's quite at odds with many of my peers who more so think that like social programs and government programs are the way to do it. Um, do you and, and even like I think you know, private sponsorship of, of refugees makes a lot of sense. Uh, are you comfortable to kind of talk about the, the difference between, you know, that that I'd, more capitalist approach and what you see more as now this like social approach? Well, I mean, the challenge with social approach is if I come and hold a gun to your head and take half of your money, you don't feel good about the half of money that got taken generally. Mm. So even uh, I, there's so many people I know, they want to not pay any tax and think, well, we shouldn't pay any tax. Oh, no, the tax went up by 1%. Isn't this awful? Blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. Not realizing, well, that's because of, you know, we, we need some basic safety net here. Um, and we need roads and we need police and we need, uh, you know, services. Um, the advantage of doing things which are voluntary, there's just such a big difference, if you know what I mean. Like if I, yeah. if I uh, hold you up and take your wallet and uh, give $20 to someone who's homeless, you don't feel very good about that. No. If I ask you, can you give me $20 to help, you go away and say, oh, don't I feel nice? I gave you $20 to help. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's the difference between being forced to and not. I think the other thing we all feel about government is government's not very efficient. So government-sponsored refugees was great. The government people are really good. They try really hard, but at the end of the day, they have a caseload. At the end of the day, I always say you can't hire friends, and that's mm -hmm. what private sponsorship is. So we've we've had calls from you know refugee families at uh, eight o'clock at Saturday night. Like it's not like oh we'll wait until the office opens at eight on Monday morning. It's like oh we'll we'll come over and and uh, and try to help out right um to some extent scale also creates an inefficiency i mean government can write checks government can't help as much mm -hmm. like government sponsored refugees are issued bus passes we issue we get them bus passes but we ride the bus with them yeah can you imagine if you're if I sent you to Russia and gave you a bus pass, like it's not that easy. No. You don't speak the language. You don't read the letters. You don't know where you're going. Maybe if someone rode the bus with you three or four times to show you where to go get your groceries and where the uh, downtown is and where whatever, then you'll you get more value out of the bus pass. And it's done with a social interaction as opposed to, you know, the money showed up in your account and here's a letter that has your uh, your bus pass. Right. Yeah. And, and do you think that. You know, obviously, there's something to say. There's value that comes from work rather than just getting the money. But do you think there's value that comes from a human, like more of a human interaction when they're oh, yeah. getting the money as well, rather oh, than yeah. just T showing totally. up? A absolutely, one hundred percent. I all I do actually believe in uh, volunteerism mm -hmm. and um, 
and and I don't I hope the government doesn't shut down volunteerism. I saw a lot of it in the recent Ontario budget to say, oh no, you're not allowed to volunteer. Um, you know, these people have to be paid. And but the the social aspect of volunteering, it has it has it, it it's bigger than what we think. Yeah. We all need social interaction, right? Mm-hmm. And I think it provides huge value to both people, right? The person volunteering who's maybe doesn't have the ability to donate much money, but they can donate time. And then the other person knows that that person's there because they want to be there. They want to be helping, not necessarily exactly. they have to be paid. Exactly. Exactly. And so now I'm interested to kind of how do you what does your day or your week look like? You know, you have all of these you obviously focus on Danby, but you have other things on the go and you're a philosopher. You must want to enjoy your time as well. So how do you kind of break up your day? Well, people have asked me how, what is my typical day? And I will tell you, there is no typical day. Yeah. So it, I, I run a calendar, you know, we had a call scheduled. I, I am available, whatever the schedule time is. Yeah. So I have an assistant and she tells me where I'm supposed to be, when I'm supposed <laughs> to be. And I tend to, to do that. Yeah. I, if there's one other philosophy I have, I am a health guy. Okay. So um, I don't eat meat. It's better for the world and it's better for health. But the same thing, uh, if you ask what my typical day is, I um, 95, 98% of the time I get my 10,000 steps in my Fitbit and I uh, will often do walking meetings with people. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I schedule, how am I going to get my 10,000 steps in? And I work out and, try to eat right and all that kind of stuff. But at the same time, I'm, I'm on a seafood diet. If you put cake in front of me, I eat it. So yeah, you know. <laughs> that's fair. And I guess that's fair enough. If you keep healthy most of the time, then the odd time, if you're not, it's okay as well. Exactly. Exactly. And so are you, are you, do you have that kind of similar mindset? You, you're stringent in the way you operate a business, but like sometimes you'll give yourself leeway similar to the diet. Yes, exactly. Um, exactly. Actually, another trick is I'm a big believer in habits because habits don't take any willpower. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the other tricks that I do is just the little habits that allow me to get things done. Okay. And now I'm just interested, what, exci- what is exciting for you looking forward? Obviously, you're a grateful guy. You're, you're happy to be here. But, you know, projecting, do you project forward five, 10 years and like have a vision for Danby or, or your, yourself generally? Oh yeah, absolutely. So I, I want to turn Danby into a billion dollar company because I don't want everyone to be sitting around saying, gee, that Jim Estel, he's kind of a, a one, one shot wonder. <laughs> right? So yeah. no, that's my, that's my, uh, that's what I want to do with Danby, but you can't just focus on the number. It's like, how are you going to get there? So yeah. Um, I spend a lot of my time with plans and designs and uh, whatnot. Same time, I believe in fail off and fail fast, fail cheap. So let's try yeah. some things and see what sticks and yeah. um, what sticks and get rid of what doesn't stick. Ha- have you read about uh, Oreo and their model of testing? So, uh, no. So a lot of other, yeah, a lot of other companies, especially food companies, they'll spend a lot of time developing a new flavor and like really trying to think of doing market research. Whereas Oreo, they'll just create a new flavor, put it out in a market, see how it does and just do that a ton. And if something sells really quickly, then they'll give it a bigger trial. But they really just apparently like test it, test it, test it. I, I completely agree with their approach. That is totally the way it's fail off and fail fast, fail cheap. And there's nothing like a real test mm-hmm. because a company, you know, I could go and say, Oh, here's my new product. Um, could I give it to you? Well, if, if yes, I can give it to a thousand people and say, Oh, I've got a thousand people. They're happy. Yeah. Well, yeah. Except then when I say, oh, now you have to pay me $500 for it. It's like, well, well wait a minute. I'm not going to pay my $500. Nothing like a real market test product costs $500. Here's my check for $500 mm-hmm. to say that it sells. Yeah. Um, you have to actually show people value it. Exactly. Consumers vote with their dollars. When mm-hmm. every time a consumer buys, that's a vote for the product. That's a vote for the company. Yeah. And what the last thing I always like to ask, um, do you find that your engineering degree was of value? Now you're not a traditional engineer, right? You're not designing things uh, actively. You're running a business. 
Right, right. I mean, uh, the engineering mindset is good. Mm-hmm. When I was early in business, the, having an engineering degree also has, to some extent, gives me some respect. So mm-hmm. early in business, particularly, people would say, oh, you're an engineer. I guess you must know something. Yeah. Um, I, I do think that uh, anybody going through engineering has a certain degree of analytical background that mm-hmm. helps them. I don't think we fully know how our education forms us, but I'm yeah. sure that it forms us even today, even though if you ask me to solve a calculus equation, <laughs> I don't remember how. Yeah. And I don't do any, I'm actually in awe of real engineers. When I go into a, an airplane and see the thing flying, I say, wow, I, I'm glad there's real engineers <laughs> that design this because I'm not designing it. Yeah, that makes sense. And what what are your thoughts on the MBA? Because, you know, I, I've, have my views of it and I think that you know you just started a business and you learned business by doing it what what are your thoughts on the MBA program and uh, you know do you have people in your executive or, or your company with MBAs and that kind of stuff because it's a very popular step for a lot of people now it seems right so I, I of course I have lots of MBAs and um, I was in business with my first business with my brother who has an MBA. Mm-hmm. And so whenever we would get into a debate and he would start, we'd start arguing and he had one view and I had one, another view, of course, uh, he had a problem cause he was my brother. So he didn't mm-hmm. uh, just do, do what I wanted him to do. Yeah. Eventually he might get to the point where I say, okay, Glenn, uh, this is just too much MBA. We need yeah. to do real, real work. Um, so I'm not saying I'm down on an MBA, but I don't think that everyone needs one. Mm-hmm. And I do think that work experience, like if, if a resume comes across my plate, one has two years experience or three years experience, the other one has an MBA, uh, I'm tempted to take the one with experience. An MBA or a, an engineering degree or any university degree mostly gets you the interview. Yeah. Once you get the interview, once you're in a company, it's a matter of it's your delivery that, that does it, right? Yeah. And if you can see someone has already delivered for someone else, that's a lot better, I guess. Totally right. Totally right. All right. Do you have any last, uh, you know, pieces of advice for me or, or anyone listening who, you know, one, wants to run a successful company and two, wants to have, you know, a positive impact on the world? So Danby Appliance's tagline is do the right thing. So steal mm-hmm. that. I, <laughs> I would love to drive past your business and see the same sign I have out that says do the right thing. Um, because it's an easy way to run a business. How do you treat your employees? Well, you do the right thing. How do you treat your coworkers? How do you treat your customers? Um, And at the same time, it extends to the world. It's the simplest way to answer how do you do things. Do the right thing, Mm -hmm. and it keeps you from shortcutting. Think long-term, and uh, think that'll work. Yeah, well, I I appreciate that, and I want to thank you again for coming on and being a guest today. I definitely want to have you on some other time and we can just talk philosophy and, and get into some more uh, of life because I'd love to hear your insights. Awesome. Well, thank you. 